Hi everybody, this is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles Stories of the Supernatural. And I hope you enjoy this new show, whether you're viewing it on the internet or listening to a podcast version of the episode. I do want to thank you for being part of my audience. You can also find links to videos or podcasts on MiamiGhostChronicles.com as well as where you can submit your story about any eerie experiences you've had, which I would love to hear about. Just go to the Submit Your Story tab. Please subscribe to our channel so that you receive notification of when we release a new show. And find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This is where I usually live stream and where I give you a behind-the-scenes look at locations where new episodes are being filmed at, I also tell you about all the interesting guests that will be appearing soon on Stories of the Supernatural. I hope you enjoy the show, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi, everybody. This is Marlene with Miami Ghost Chronicles, Stories of the Supernatural. And yes, at the beginning, it might seem like I'm a little bit out of sync because, again, paranormal sabotage stepped in. Thank God I immediately caught it and screwing with my audio. But anyway, what I was describing here is I'm earlobe deep in the hot, humid weather of South Florida. Right in time for hurricane season and hopefully this year it will be a lot better for us because it is extremely humid outside, no wind. But being a Miami native, it's the same it's always been. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Nothing like subtropical weather. But anyway, uh, I did want to introduce a fascinating guest, which I have today, which is Dr. Scott Kolbaba. Now, he's been a practicing internist who, after completing a tour in the Marine Corps Reserves, he attended the University of Illinois College of Medicine. He graduated with honors, and he completed his residency at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. He's in private practice now and has been recognized as one of the top physicians in the Chicagoland area. Now, he wrote a book called Physicians Untold Stories, where he interviewed 200 courageous physicians, courageous because doctors a lot of times will not talk about this subject, and he put together 26 stories of miraculous experiences that these doctors talk about, whether it was dreams foretelling future events, apparitions, you name it, he put that book together, and it talks about things that a lot of times uh, regular people, let alone doctors, will talk about and near-death experiences. In other words, what happens to us after we pass away? What happens to our bodies yes. after we yes. pass away? <laughs> Dr. Kalbaba, how did you get involved in writing this book? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty ordinary doc. I'm pretty conservative. I take care of patients. I, um, I'm actually considered pretty boring at parties. You know, you wouldn't want to sit next to me at a party. And so I, I was going along just minding my own business, very happy with my life. And then I started to have some personal experiences and then some experiences that, that uh, were related to me by doctors. And I, I was just fascinated because these are things that docs don't talk about. I think one of the first things that got me interested in this was a story from, from Steve Heim, who's an orthopedic surgeon. 
Steve uh, is a trauma surgeon. He's also a back surgeon, and uh, he's a good friend. And we were having breakfast one morning, and Steve said, I, I just have to tell you this. He was just, I could tell he was just bubbling with something. He had to, had to get up. And he said, I've got to tell you this story that just happened to me over the weekend. And I said, okay, go ahead. And so he said, I was skiing with my wife and my wife's sister in Colorado, and we were skiing on a mountain we'd not been familiar with. And as we were skiing down the mountain, a, a blizzard hit, and we could hardly see in front of us. It was just, uh, the, the snow was coming down like crazy. The temperature dropped. The wind was blowing. And we could hardly see anything. We could see maybe 10 feet in front of us. And they came to a patch of trees that they weren't expecting, and they had to go to the right or the left. And Steve went to the right and expected the girls would, you know, be with him. But they went to the left because they couldn't see that he went to the right. And so they separated. And as soon as Dr. Heim realized that, he decided to, to you know, ski through the grove of trees because he's an expert skier. And it was about five feet of powder snow. And he said, as I was doing that, uh, wanting to get back to the girls as soon as possible, I suddenly had this really strange sensation, this feeling in the center of my chest, like there was something really, really bad happening. And he said, at the same time, everything became quiet. The snow was coming down, the wind was blowing, but it was just silent. He could hear himself breathe, he could hear the crunch of snow in his, uh, under his skis. And he said he had that feeling that he had to stop skiing. He had no idea why. Now the girls are literally waiting for him on the other side. He knew that they would wait for, for him. And he stopped skiing. And he stood there for a minute wondering what the heck he's doing. He's standing on the side of a mountain. The snow is coming down like crazy. It's silent. And he's standing there wondering what to do. He takes the skis off. And then he thinks, I, I have to climb up the mountain again. So he's climbing up the mountain in the opposite direction from the girls. He had no idea why he was doing that, but he had this feeling that there was something he was called to do that had life and death proportions. He had no idea what, what it was. So he's walking, climbing, and walking, and climbing, and again, it's very quiet. He can hear the crunch of snow under his boots at this point. He's holding, holding onto his skis, and he comes to a big pine tree. And under the pine tree, there's a, there's a thing called a tree well, which is where the snow comes down to the base of the tree. Okay. And all of a sudden, he looked down under the tree, and he knew why he was there. Under the tree, covered with snow, was a body. So he couldn't tell if the person was alive or dead, so he brushed off his head. He's a trauma surgeon. He knew exactly what to do. So he brushed off his head to see if he was breathing. It didn't like, look like he was breathing. Okay. So he reached up for his, for his, at, his, at his neck for his carotid artery to see if he had a pulse, and he had a thready pulse, so he knew he was alive. So all of a sudden, the adrenaline comes up, he goes into trauma mode, he brushes the snow off the body, he covers him up with his blankets, or with his uh, jackets, I should say, and he starts to call for help. Help! Help! Okay. There were skiers coming down the mountain because this, this, this blizzard, you know, stopped pretty much everything. But there was one last skier coming down that heard his cry for help and came to his side and he said, what can I do? And Steve said, go down to the, the nearest phone or the, or the lodge and get the ski patrol up here as soon as possible. This guy's almost dead. He's hypothermic, he's shocky, he's unconscious. And so about 15 minutes later, he, see, he saw the light of a snowmobile pulling a gurney, which was the ski patrol. They loaded this guy up uh, onto the gurney and, and took him back down to the lodge where there was a waiting ambulance that whisked him off to the nearest hospital. Meantime, St Steve is, is shivering and cold and adrenaline, and he puts his jackets back on, makes his way back, and the girls were still waiting for him on the other side of the, the packed trees. They skied down the mountain. Uh, Steve was given his reward for saving the guy's life, which was a cup of hot chocolate. <laughs> I bet that was great at that, that moment, though. 
<laughs> and, the, and the next morning, uh, he called up to the hospital and said, how is this guy that, that uh, you know, was found in the mountain, brought in by the ski patrol? And he said, he's perfectly fine. He's alive. He did a great job of splinting. He had a broken leg. And, and Steve okay. was an orthopedic surgeon, splinted his leg in the field with uh, some of his clothing and, and a tree branch. He said, you did a great job of splinting his leg. The orthopedic surgeons here were very amazed at how well you could do it in the field. And he's, he's, he's fine. He was hypothermic and shocky and everything else, but he's now awake, alert. He'll be going home from the hospital in a couple of days, and, and you saved his life. What happened? He had run into the tree when he was skiing? Definitely hit the tree because he couldn't see with the snow coming down so much, and he ran into the tree, uh, oh. fell into the, into the tree well where no one could see him. And Steve said, had he not seen him, had he not been standing right over that tree, he wouldn't have seen him. Yeah. And no one would have found him until this, this spring. Because it was, you know, he would have been covered with snow. Right. They would have said, we can't find this guy, and then good luck on right. trying to find him. Exactly. Exactly. And talk about the best person to find you under those well, circumstances. You know, what a coincidence. A trauma surgeon, you know. I mean, yes. the, the, the person in the middle of nowhere to find a person in the middle of the woods uh, that needed his, his help. And so That's I said, Steve, what did, what did you think about this? And he said, well, you know, there's no question. that This was some divine intervention. There's something, there's something out there. You have to believe in something that directed me to this guy because I had to be right over that tree to see him. Otherwise, no one would have seen him. Exactly. And wow. then, he said, then he said something that was really interesting. He said, two people were saved that day. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, the, the skier obviously was saved, but I was saved too. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, two years ago, I was skiing with my father in northern Michigan. And my father arrested on the trail, the, the cross-country trail. And, and he, I had to rush him down. Uh, after we got him revived a little bit, we rushed him down to the, to the to nearest first aid station where there actually was a, a doc that was, that was there that knew CPR and had trained at Northwestern. And we both worked on him for about an hour. And we couldn't save him. My father died. And Steve's a guy that's an orthopedic surgeon. They're not used to people dying on their service. You right. That okay. do uh, joints and bones and so forth. And he said, mm -hmm. I, I, I had the guilt. I, I kept that guilt of, of that I was responsible for his death all these last two years. Wow. And he said, when I found this guy in the mountain, this, this skier that was, that was unconscious, that hit the tree, I realized that um, this was my second chance. It was exactly. someone that was giving me a second chance to, 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 do, to save a life, and I, I succeeded. And that made me realize that my father's death really wasn't my fault, that people live and they, and they die and they have a certain time when they go, and it wasn't my fault, and my guilt suddenly was lifted now that I had an opportunity to save I this skier. I can imagine. Because exactly so, with that type of injury of a broken leg, who yeah. better, specifically the orthopedic surgeon? Exactly. I mean, obviously, besides that, he was, you know, hypothermic, but still... So, yeah. yes, it was like it, I could see where, where he was carrying that around, probably thinking, I want to like, I want to make it right. Yeah. And that and is had such guilt. a fantastic story. He had death for two years, and he couldn't function as well. And he, finally, he, the guilt was relieved. And I said, Steve, do you think your dad was in on this, on this scheme? And he said, there's no question. Yeah. My dad was in on it. Right. So, uh, yeah, yeah, probably. So that, I got to get him off the hook because if not, he's going to be carrying this around with him. Exactly, exactly. So and that story got me thinking about, I wonder if other doctors have had these unusual experiences, because I had a couple just before that, that, that kind of shook me a little bit. I, I had one uh, when I was vacationing in Cape Cod. 
We okay. love to go to Cape Cod, which is uh, in Massachusetts. It's on the on the coast, and and we love to go there because the beaches are great, the food is incredible, and uh, my wife grew up just outside the Cape, so we like to take the whole family there about every three or four years. And we were vacationing there, and uh, on vacation the boys cook, uh, and we kind of enjoy it. And we cook some things we don't normally cook. So this particular night we were cooking swordfish steaks, and and uh, we're cooking corn on the cob, and and all kinds of wonderful things like that. And we had gone to the store uh, to buy the, the, the food for, the, for that evening, and at the store they had pies. And they had a whole stack of cherry pies. And we got to talking as, as the boys were talking about what their favorite pie was. And we all decided that it was Grandma Kolbab as my mother's uh, rhubarb pie, because we had a big rhubarb plant in our backyard. Uh -huh. And every fall she'd pick all the stalks and she'd make this incredibly sweet rhubarb pie in huge pans. And when we'd visit her, we'd go in and with the spoons in hand, you know, no plates, nothing, <laughs> yeah. get into the rhubarb pie, and we'd finish it off. You know, we thought we'd sneak into the kitchen. My mother knew exactly what we were doing. Of course. <laughs> but she died a few years before our vacation, so we, got, we missed her a great deal. And she loved family things. She would love to have been at the family uh, vacation you know, with us. And we all said if she was there, she'd probably make us a rhubarb pie. We had to settle for cherry pies that night. So everyone, you know... Did you ever have a time, a day that you just remember as the most incredible day of your life, where everything was yes. absolutely perfect? The sunset was was gorgeous. The the day was beautiful. All the everyone was getting along. Mm -hmm. uh, the kids were playing. Everyone was laughing and talking. It was one of those most perfect days that you could ever remember. And I kept thinking to myself, "Gee, it's too bad my mother really would have loved this." It's too bad she couldn't be here to join us. So we had the dinner, and it was really good. We did a great job of cooking, I must say. This swordfish was incredible, and the corn on the cob was great. And we got to the pie. My, my wife served us the cherry pie. I took one bite of the cherry pie and got goosebumps up and down my back. And I looked at the pie, and I looked at the box that said cherry pie, but it wasn't a cherry pie. Oh, no. It was it a was rhubarb ru pie? It was a rhubarb pie. Oh. And I knew... I, I was certain. Now you can you can certainly say it must have gotten mixed up with rhubarb pie yes. at the factory or the bakery or wherever it was made, but to me that wasn't uh, a, no a, no that was other who who was telling me that she was there exactly that, exactly because that's what are the odds of that uh, that's incredible yes and I totally agree with you yes I totally agree with you so, because of so the timing because of the circumstances it was right. like. She was letting you all know. I think she was. So after that, after the Heim story, I really got sensitized to this. So this boring doctor uh, started this hang out at the doctor's lounge. And as doctors would come and I'd say, uh, listen, I'm, I'm writing a book. I committed myself to writing a book because I thought this, these stories are, were enough. And a couple others that I had were enough to, to, to write a book. And I, I thought they would be pretty interesting for people to read about so I'd ask the doctors uh, in the lounge early in the morning, and everyone's rushing in, if they had any stories of things that they couldn't explain scientifically. And I was amazed at the number of doctors that had incredible stories, because doctors never talk about this stuff. I never heard any of these stories before this, and I've been in practice for about 25 years before, mm -hmm. and no one talks about this, And but, but... I, there must have been some way that I asked them or something with, that many of them came up with, with phenomenal stories. Makes you almost think that they wanted to find somebody to tell the story to that would understand. Who better I, than another I, doctor? I think they did. And, you know, I think the doctors were afraid to tell these stories because 
you tell a story like this and, and people are going to say, you're a crackpot, you're crazy. You <laughs> know? What, yeah. what, what kind of a doc? I'm not going to go to you anymore as a patient. Yeah, exactly. So, so I interviewed lots of doctors, about 200, I, I, I assume, roughly. And I, I got a, a lot of stories, but I only included the ones that either gave me goosebumps or brought me to tears mm -hmm. when I heard the story. And those are the ones I included. And I was, again, amazed at the number of stories that, that uh, came up. And I think the bottom line is that these docs um, really wanted to tell these stories despite potentially risking their careers because they wanted to have people know that there's something else out there and that they sure. uh, had experienced this. And these are scientists that have experienced these unusual right. supernatural occurrences. And that if they did, other people must have experiences. And, and in talking about this and talking to my patients and talking to people like you, I've realized that almost everyone has had, either personally or through their family, mm -hmm. some, some experience that they simply can't explain. Yes. yes. And they're tell people. And hopefully this book and, and my telling these stories will allow them or give them permission to, to, to tell their story so that they can get it out uh, and not be afraid of, of retribution or afraid of someone thinking they're crazy. And I think that's happened. So. Right. It's almost because I think sometimes there's like a, a thing of either if you're either a scientist or science or spirituality and it's one excludes the other. And I don't think that that's the case at all. I that, agree. I agree. You know, yeah. you can have pure science, which is great. And um, but there's also a spiritual and, and I think also doctors, because I guess also the, even though, like you said, it could happen to you at any time, um, you know, you deal sometimes depending on your practice, when people, if it's a trauma emergency room, I'm sure maybe you see more people that come in that, you know, could pass away or are very seriously injured. But I imagine you also come across patients, especially uh, if you've been treating them for a while, that you, you, you have stories, I imagine. Is that what you found when you interviewed these other doctors, if they worked in other fields? Um. They had all kinds of stories, both of, with patients and and personally. They had so so there there were lots of lots of stories that I came across, and they were all different. Uh, it seemed like some uh, were, were dreams, premonitions, ghosts, things like that. Well, I had I interviewed a girl. She 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 you know in her regular job she's a hospice nurse, and she told me she goes Marlene, you know what? Some of these patients I've had them sometimes for quite a while. So yes. I'm familiar with who the family members, she goes, and I always know when they're going to pass away. And I said, how? She goes, because they'll start talking to people that I know because I've, that I know have passed away. Spouses, yeah. relatives. She goes, since I've been with them, and all of a sudden she says, once I hear them having these conversations or acting like they're interacting with uh, somebody that I know is deceased, I know that before long, shortly, they're going to be passing away. And that's what that's what happens. And I, I've had hospice nurses, uh, hospice doctors, uh, tell me that also. The mm -hmm. ER, the ER sees this too. It's it's in the literature, and, and they see it uh, not uncommonly. Fred Bullhofer is one of my good friends who works in the, as an ER doc, and he was saying that he had a guy that came in in a full arrest, and they were doing CPR, mm -hmm. and they shot him in the ambulance, and they brought him into the into the um, uh, ER. And as he were, they were wheeling him into the, uh, the, the, the cardiac room, he arrested again. They had to shock him again. Uh, then as they, as they put him into the, into the, into the bed in the, uh, in the cardiac room, he arrested again. And they had to wow. shock him a third time. 
when he finally came to, uh, he looked unusually calm. And Fred said, you know, you, you just had three arrests. You know, did you know what happened to you? And he said, yeah, I, I did, but, but I, I somehow have a, a sense of peace. And Fred said, well, well, why is that? And he said, well, the first time uh, when, I, when I arrested, my, my father came to me, and I could see him standing right near me, uh, and I could almost touch him. And he said, uh, the next time, uh, he was joined by my wife. And the third time, he was joined by my brother. So I had my brother, my wife, and my father standing right, right next to each other, right near me, as I, was, as I went out. And it gave me a lot of peace, and, and they didn't say anything, but it just gave me this sense of, of peace and comfort. And uh, the, yeah, the, uh, Dr. Bohoffer, the, the ER doc, said, well, are they going to be seeing you, well, you know, while you're in the hospital here? And he said, they've all died. Wow. So it was his impression that these individuals who had died, mm -hmm. uh, special to the patient, were coming to take him, take him back. And right. uh, so it's not unusual that we have people that are near death or, or at, the, at the edge of a, li a life that see their deceased relatives uh, mm -hmm. or good friends or significant others and uh, will talk to them. Uh, I, I agree, that's, that happens. Right, and, and the thing is, I think also, and I know some people say, well, you know, and people are, you know, the ones that have that near-death experience, sometimes it's because of the brain, and, you know, it's certain parts of the brain, or lack of oxygen, they give all these, but I'm thinking to myself, you know what, considering that usually in our society, people are afraid of dying, you know. Yes, yes. But then when they have this experience, they have, they, in other words, you would think that once they have that experience, that they're happy, because a lot of them will say, I did, I wanted to die, you know, I wanted to not come back into my body. Yes. Having ex ex experiences of happiness and no pain. So you would be thinking, well, if you have already an expectation of fear of death, mm -hmm. yes. you don't carry it over. As a matter of fact, most of the time, uh, some of these uh, experiences I've read about, usually they return normally because they've left someone they love behind, like children or right. a right. loved one. But they right. kind of teeter-totter on, do I really want to go back? And, you know, I think uh, we've had a couple stories like that, you know, where people, I'm, I'm convinced that people can sometimes make a decision. Do they cross that river and, mm -hmm. and leave the earth or do they stay on the shore and, they go, and go back? We had one doc, um, Bob Cornell, uh, was good friends with, with um, one of my uh, gynecology friends, John Messon. And uh, John and Bob uh, used to meet in the doctor's lounge every morning and talk about their favorite thing, which is fishing. <laughs> so they talk about fishing before they went on the rounds. And I think uh, John Messick used to say of Bob Cornell, Bob knew every lure that you had to use in every lake and every body of water in the United <laughs> States, bar none. And he was just a avid fisherman. And uh, they became actually good friends, uh, meeting in the doctor's lounge every morning, talking about uh, fishing and also about their families, which they loved. And so one day, uh, John Messett was in the doctor's lounge, and Bob Cornell didn't show up, and he realized, uh, he was just told that he had a massive stroke, and he was in the ICU. Wow. So John went into the ICU to see him, and he was totally unconscious. He was essentially brain, essentially brain dead. He had a massive stroke. He talked to the ER, to, to the uh, intensivist in the uh, ICU, and, and the intensivist said, you know, it's, I'm sorry that your friend um, uh, Bob Cornell is, is really essentially brain dead. We're going to keep him on uh, you know, the ventilator for a couple more days, and then on the third day, if he doesn't come around, we're going to take him off the ventilator and let him die. 
And John Messer was just devastated. He never didn't realize how close he had become to, to Bob Cornell with those meetings mm -hmm. in the morning, how you don't realize how special something is until you miss it, until it's gone. Sure. So John Messer didn't know what to do. Uh, and you, you want to do something. You know, when, when something is really that, that devastating, you want to you want to do something. What can I do? And he didn't know what he could do. So he pulled the curtain uh, so no one could see him uh, to the little cubicle where, where Bob Cornell was. And he, and he got real close to his ear so no one could hear him. And he started telling Bob Cornell fishing stories. <laughs> he told a fishing story he'd never told him before about how he went to the Mackenzie River in, in Canada and caught so many fish that he got sore arms in catching the fish. And he told him what he had fished with and the lure and how he was afraid when the pontoon boat, the pontoon plane that he flew in uh, with kind of bobbled around and almost crashed in the water. And, and all, you know, it was a, a very interesting story. And every day he'd go back uh, and tell this unconscious uh, doctor uh, a story. And uh, John Messett's wife said, what the heck are you doing? You're telling, you know, you're, you're, you're telling a person who's brain dead uh, stories. He can't hear you. Why are you telling him stories? And he just felt the need to tell him these stories. He, uh -huh. he, something he could do. And so on the third day when he was supposed to be unplugged, uh, John Messett came in and realized he was too late. The bed was all taken down, the, the light was off in the room, uh, the body was gone. And he asked the nurse when, he, when Bob Cornell had died. And the nurse laughed at him, <laughs> and he was offended. Uh, and she said, well, he didn't die. He woke up yesterday, and he's now down in the step-down unit. Oh, my so, so now, when, how does that work? Here they're thinking, how did he go from brain dead to that? They, they thought he was brain dead, but he must not have been truly brain dead. So, and, you know, there's a, there's a gray area sometimes there where, you know, if a person's truly brain dead or, or you know, just about, but, but he was as close to being brain dead as, as you can be. Uh, he was totally unconscious, no responses to anything. Wow. So he did wake And so when, when, when John Messett caught up with him, uh, Bob Cornell said, you know, uh, John, thank you. He was, had a broken, broken speech because of his stroke. Thank you for, for uh, sticking with me and telling me those stories about your fishing in the Mackenzie River, catching all those grayling fish and hurting your arms and with the pontoon uh, so plane. So he was and all. hearing all these stories. Yeah, everything. And wow. so John said, wondered, you know, this was, this was Bob Cornell's ultimate passion in life. And, and Bob said to him, I look forward to every day when you would come back and tell me more of the story. And you certainly wonder if, if Bob Cornell was on the edge of that river, mm -hmm. lost and, and ended his life, or stayed. And I think, you know, John Messett always wonders whether those stories that he told Bob Cornell of, of the things that he loved kept him from, from taking that step. You never know. I think know. it's possible. It's I think possible. it's possible. And almost, or if you want to say, you know, it almost tethered him to this plane because he's hearing these stories. Yes. And it was yeah. like, oh, I want to stay and go to that river or go to that fishing spot. Yeah, yeah. Now, to my knowledge and to John Messitz, uh, Bob Cornell never made it to the Mackenzie River, at least not in this lifetime. <laughs> he lived a number of years afterwards, ultimately died of unrelated causes, and uh, I suspect he's in the Mackenzie River fishing Probably. as we speak. <laughs> but that is such a fantastic story. And you know what? It goes to show you that sometimes like miracles do happen in the sense of that 
Because you always hear when, when you're told that a person is brain dead, it's exactly like what you described. It's like, okay, yeah. this He's person gone. is being kept alive by machinery, yeah. and once we shut off the machinery, that's it. You know, the, yeah. the, the death will be complete. Yes. Yeah. So even then, you just really don't know. You no. don't know. So, and I've even heard of people that have been in long-term comas that sometimes if they have somebody that's there, like similar to this, but more long-term where they're continuously talking to them, giving them stories, telling them to yeah. wake up. When yeah. They do eventually, not all the time, but some of them do come up and they were aware. Yes. You never know. You, you never, never know. know. And you never know when a person has a choice of leaving or staying. And I think that that is a, that that is a choice that what some of yes. us get. And yes. uh, so was, uh, this was his choice to come back and do more fishing, I think. <laughs> and you would think, especially, like you said, after having a massive stroke, that I imagine, yeah, everybody was saying, well, no, this is too bad. I can't. Yeah. <laughs> I imagine his wife must have kissed Dr. Vessa and said thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they did. I bet they did. So. Because that is, and um, in, in, in a way, that's that's a great story because, um, it's almost like unlooked for, unexpected. Yeah. You see what yeah. I'm saying? It's not like you're going out there. It's it's almost like on a personal level, it just happens mm -hmm. to involve two doctors. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you think, well, this doctor who's, again, a scientist, he's still going there, not because he really understands why, but he goes there and he tells them these stories. Yeah, yeah. There were lots of circumstances in the book that I, that I realized that people did things and they didn't know why they did them. Yes. They, they just felt a compulsion and, a, and an urgency to do something. And I think that's a, that's a good lesson for all of us that, that, you know, sometimes we'll get these feelings mm -hmm. to go up to a person and just comfort them or say hi to them or something. And, and uh, you know, I think we should listen to those feelings because sometimes that person that uh, we're directed to needs a little uh, uh, love or attention or something that may even change their life. And I think that happens. So, yeah. uh, and that, that's, that was the, one of the things that happened you know, regularly in the, in the book, that p these doctors were, felt compelled to do something. And when they followed their, their compulsion or their premonition, uh, it turned out to be life-saving. Right, uh, theological yeah. choice, yeah. in other words. Sure. I can think of one, uh, Rich Jorgensen is one of my good uh, surgical friends, and Rich uh, uh, was, had a dream one night, and you know, you don't, normally I, I have dreams on occasion, but you know, as soon as you wake up, you, the dream goes away and you, you mm -hmm. forget the rest of the day. This, this was a pretty, pretty incredible dream. He dreamt that one of his good friends, it was a judge, a appellate judge in, in Illinois, uh, had died, and uh, he saw, in the dream, he saw him in the coffin in the funeral home. And it was very, very moving dream. You know, he was he was sad. He was just crying. You know, over this mm -hmm. dream, he woke up, and he couldn't get it out of his mind that he had to he had to tell him something. And it's interesting that a couple of weeks before, Dr. Jorgensen was having breakfast with someone that's kind of a, a 1970s hippie type, and uh, she was saying, you know, when you have a dream, the Earth Spirit, uh, uh, if it's Someone else, the Earth Spirit wants to, to tell you something. She said, and 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 when you when you have that dream, you should tell the person that you had a dream about. So Rich kept thinking about that, and he decided to call up the judge, you know, and 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 tell him that he dreamt that he was dead. Now, can you imagine picking up the phone and calling your good friend, one of your best friends, and saying, "I saw you dead in my dream." You know? It's like, it's like, thanks. <laughs> 
we put it in a subtle, more subtle way than I, I just put it. And, and the judge started to laugh. He said, that's a funny dream, Rich. You know, uh, what, what, do you, what do you think I should do about that? And Rich said, well, could you do me a favor? Can you just get a physical? That would, you know, that would make me happy. That way they'll make sure that you don't have any heart issues or anything else that could kill you. And so the, the judge said, well, I haven't had a physical for a while. I, you know, if you want me to do that, Rich, I'll, I'll do that. So he went and get a physical. The fellow that did the physical did a complete job. He saw him and he, and he listened to his heart and he did the EKG and the blood work and everything else. And it was, everything was perfectly normal. So uh, the judge called up Dr. Jorgensen and said, um, you know, Rich, I, I want to let you know I, I, I did what you told me to do. I had my physical. I'm in perfect health. There's no problem at all. And Dr. Jorgensen got this really sinking feeling in his chest. Like, you know, there's still something wrong here. Right. That the dream was just so vivid that mm -hmm. we have to. We have to go further. And he said, he said to the judge, you know, he's going on a limb now because, you know, <laughs> he's stretching his friendship a little bit because the judge did what he said for the first time. Uh -huh. And Rich said, would you see my cardiologist? And the judge said, well, you know, Dr. Rich, I, I just saw you a doctor. I had a complete physical. Do you really think I need to see a cardiologist? And Rich said, would you please see my cardiologist and, and just, you know, have him look at you and see what he thinks. And finally, the judge decided to do that. So the cardiologist, they did some tests. He flunked the stress test very badly. They put him in the hospital, did an angiogram. He had what's called a widowmaker, which is a coronary lesion that causes death within about three months generally in most people. Oh, my God. And other major lesions in his heart, they, they decided to take him to bypass surgery without releasing him from the hospital uh -huh. the next day because they were afraid that he would die if anything happened. Uh, a little clot formed on that on that narrowed artery, 99% narrowed artery, and so they took him right to surgery the next day. They saved, literally saved his life. And um, the judge, when he was uh, coming out of the the anesthetic, uh, said, "Rich, uh, thank you, thank you for for pushing me to to get this and saving my life." And so, Rich had this premonition, this dream, that he 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 couldn't get out of his head right. that he had something. And like I said, lots of the doctors in, in, this, in the book had these kinds of things, uh, premonitions or, or urges to do something. And when they followed through, they made a huge difference. And I think that's a good lesson for all of us. Right. And what's interesting is, and people don't realize that sometimes our subconscious mind or premonitions where speaks to mm -hmm. us in symbols. And mm -hmm. for him to see him, his friend, dead... Yeah. It wasn't like he didn't take it as this is inevitable or a bad dream. Right. He felt right. it was like something that he could still intervene. Yeah. Yeah. And do something about. It was interesting that the person that had talked with him a couple of weeks before had put a bug in his ear exactly. about telling others when you have a dream, you have to re relate it to other people. And, and so uh, that's what he did. Very interesting. And thank God he, he also was like persistent about it because what is it? That that kind of test he had with a cardiologist was just something yes. that wouldn't show up with a regular checkup. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. So he was persistent enough and he really, you know, stuck his neck out because he, he's telling this person to do all these things and can you imagine if it was all normal? It's like, uh, okay, he, that's it. My credibility shot. <laughs> yeah, my credibility shot. I'm not gonna listen to you anymore, Rich. It's like okay. Uh, yeah, we're friends. But, no, you pushed me to the limit here. Yes. Uh, kind of so that, that was is. And sometimes it's, and you know, people. I'm sure people. There's people out there that ask themselves, why do 
some people around, let's say a person like what happened to him, like that mm -hmm. judge, have a person that's yeah. able to intervene if they pay attention. And then other things happen, which then you get into the thing of predestination as in it's your time. There's just exactly. no way that yeah. you're going to dodge that bullet in the sense of this is your time to die. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Now, why do some people get the reprieve and some people don't? And uh, yes. I heard a TED talk about that one time, and there was a, there was a um, minister from England that, that said, I've got the answer for why God intervenes or why, you know, whatever you want to cons consider the, uh, the, this, this force out there, uh, whether you call it God or whatever. Uh, why, why there's some intervention at some times and not other times, and, and, the, and the minister came up with a real good explanation. He said, you know, there are, there are times, for example, when they had the tsunami in, in Malaysia, right. and uh, there was a church, for example, that held uh, services on the beach every Sunday, and for some reason, this particular Sunday, they went up into the mountain to have their service. Wow. And the would have killed all those people. Now, why did so those people, why were those people saved and other people weren't? And he said, the reason for that uh, and he gave a, a, a very good explanation. He said, the reason for that is the following. We don't know. <laughs> yes. Or you think how many of those people did get some type of premonition or warning and they poo-pooed it. Yeah. I yeah. said, oh, my God. I'm just like, that's, yeah. I'm getting paranoid, you know. What's, yeah. what? The last thing, of course, they're going to expect is a tsunami of all things. Exactly. Exactly. So I guess that, that's, again, a good lesson for us that when we, when we feel some of those premonitions or thoughts to – at least uh, consider acting on, on, on those things. Yes, yes. And I mean, you, know, you never know. You know, you, you always hear those stories, you know, about those people that don't get on certain flights and then exactly. the, the plane crashes. Exactly. And then, and I'm thinking to myself, well, the ones that do, that do get the premonition mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and get on it, how do you quantify it? There's no way because they died, you know, exactly. which makes you think how many people actually get some type of warning and they just don't, mm -hmm. either they yeah. can't or they don't pay attention to it. Yeah, yeah. One of my good friends, Denny Fitch, uh, was an airline pilot, a captain of United Airlines, and um, he uh, he loved to fly. It, it was his it was goal in life to fly, and, and I took care of him for the longest time. And uh, he was teaching. Uh, he, he got to be so expert at this particular uh, airline, the DC-10, that he was teaching other pilots uh, about disasters. And, and they had every every year the pilots evidently had to train, and, and they would go for a week-long training at this facility in Denver where they would be trained in, in various disasters. And they'd get into a simulator, and they'd, they'd have, like, an engine would blow up, or they'd have uh, loss of pressure at 30,000 feet or something, and they would be trained in what to do. And, and, and uh, it was a grueling kind of a training because, you know, they, they would have to be really uh, on top of the situation and, and yes. be aware, and, and if they messed up, their training flight would crash. And so they were training on, uh, interestingly, on the loss of hydraulic uh, power. Uh, and the DC-10 has three hydraulic systems. So that's a triple backup. And uh, so they were training on one or two hydraulic systems going out. Now, the hydraulic systems control the flaps. They control the landing gear. They control the steering mechanism of the plane. And they never trained, however, on all the hydraulic systems going out because it was just like a one in a billion chance. That right, like how could they all three go up? Triple backed up, so uh, Denny was flying. They were they had this they had a, a couple days where they uh, had some time off, so they were flying back, and Denny was flying back to Chicago where he lives, uh, and um, he went to the airport. And, you know, they, the, the 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 captain of the air, airline can can pick out what flight he wants to be on, you know, as long as there's room. So he went to the terminal, 
and he discovered there was a flight, you know, about two doors down in the concourse where he could uh, get on the plane and fly to Chicago very quickly. And, and, uh, and, he, and he went to the concourse and stood there for a minute. And, and he had this feeling that he w shouldn't take that flight. He had no idea what, what that, why that was. And he, he, he stood there for a while because the flight was leaving in like five minutes. He could right. jump on the flight. There was plenty of room for him. He could be home in, in Chicago any minute. And there was another flight that he knew about that was leaving later, farther, way far down the concourse. And for some reason, he started to walk down to that flight. And he decided to get on that plane, leaving later, at a mm -hmm. later time. He wanted to get home early, but he, was, but he decided to take that flight. Well, uh, so he got on the plane. It was a DC-10, the one he'd been training on with the hydraulic systems uh, just the day before. And about a half hour into the flight, there was an explosion. The DC-10 has three engines. The, the engine on the tail exploded, and there was a fragment of the fan that, that went through and cut all three hydraulic lines. They had no hydraulic pressure. This oh, is a true story. Crap. So they couldn't steer the plane. They couldn't put the landing gear down. And the flaps and the slots, I imagine, they couldn't... They couldn't use those because oh. those are hydraulic. So Denny recognized as a passenger, he wasn't the pilot for this plane, he was just the passenger. He recognized as a passenger that there was something seriously wrong when the plane started to bank very steeply. So he talked to the stewardess and he said, uh, the flight attendant, and he said, listen, I'm, I'm a... Uh, what's called a line check airman, which means he's an expert in this particular airplane, and he teaches other pilots how to fly this airplane and deal with disasters in this particular plane. He was probably the most qualified person in the world to handle an emergency on a DC-10. So he's sitting there on the plane, and then the stewardess, the flight attendant, went up to the to the uh, uh, to the ca the captain of the flying uh, plane that was flying the plane, and said, "There's you know, I've got this line check airman," uh, and the captain said. Bring him up right away. Quick. And he took over the controls because he was so expert at this particular plane. Now, he couldn't steer it. So what he decided to do was if, if the plane, if he needed to have the plane go to the left, he would gun the engine to the right. If he needed to have the plane go to the right, he would gun the engine to the left. If he needed the plane to go up, he would gun both engines and it would, it would rise. If he needed the plane to go down, he would cut off the, the power so that the plane would go slower. And, and descend. Now he was doing this. The plane was still going three. That sounds like such a nightmare. Oh my a nightmare. They radioed the, uh, the. There's a there's a place in San Francisco where whenever there's a, there's a disaster, they can radio this mm -hmm. group of men who have manuals on every airplane that that in that that the United flies, and they radioed the, the the men and they told them what the situation was. All three hydraulic systems were out, and all of a sudden there was a silence because the men in San Francisco realized that they were talking to dead men, that they would never be able to land the plane, that when the plane ran out of gas or ran out of fuel, it. it would crash. And so they didn't know what to say because there was no, there was, this was a one in a billion circumstance. They had no contingency in other words, like what do I tell you? Uh, nothing, nothing they could do. So Denny wow. Fitch, the, our, our hero here, is, is flying the plane, it's going in sine waves, up and down and up and down, round in 360 degree circles, and they decided to land it at Sioux City, Iowa. Sioux City, Iowa is a small airport, and they have cornfields all around, it had just rained the night before, and they're going to crash land the plane in Sioux City, Iowa, without any landing gear, without being able to steer the plane to the left or the right, and they're ready, and Denny said to himself, 
I'm going to die today. I know I'm going to die today. And so they brought the plane in at 300 miles an hour, and he was able to land the plane. The, the right uh, wing tipped down, uh -huh. and fuel spilled on the plane. The whole plane caught fire. The uh, front of the plane basically was knocked off. Denny was knocked unconscious. And the plane fortunately skidded through the uh, cornfields, which slowed the plane down. And also the mud from the rain the night before also slowed the plane down. <laughs> We're able to crash land. This was uh, heralded as the most significant uh, uh, aviation feat in the history of aviation. I... Denny Fitch saved almost 200 uh, people on the plane. There were people that lost their lives, but the majority of people on that but plane... Still... And Denny survived also. And I saw him back in the office with his broken arm. And after about a year of rehab, he went back to flying. I was going to go. He went back to flying. It's like, it's like. And the question is, you know, why did he pause at that one gate and mm -hmm. not take that first plane back? Why did he go way down the concourse to get to the second plane that was leaving later? And why uh, was he? did he happen to be on that plane, the most qualified man, to fly a plane in a disaster like that? Uh, you, you just wonder. There's, there's something. Some, it, something. This was like no practice. This was not a practice run. This was the real thing. The real, yeah. So uh, he saved a number of lives, and that's uh, was actually made into a movie really? with Charles Huston. Yeah. And so, uh, and and uh, you know, well, out here in the Everglades, you know, well, we've had like three crashes, but usually that Eastern flight, the one, the yes. 401, they they had survivors, yeah. but that was the one that because they the basically the instrumentation was lying to them and telling them, yeah, that the the landing gear was not yeah. down and it was, yeah. and we'll they weren't paying that. attention. Yeah, yeah, and um. I mean, there were survivors on that. Same thing, it landed out in the Everglades because it was yeah. marshy out there. Yes. But um, I, what you're describing to me, it's like no landing gear. There's, there was no way to steer that plane. or to, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, how did he slow it down? <laughs> like, yeah, he that's... just you know, he slowed the engines down, and they could slow down too much because then they would lose because their... Because then their... they would just drop down. and Yeah. So this was an incredible feat. And again, it was heralded as the most significant aviation feat in, in the history of aviation. Yes, that is It was my incredible. patient, Denny. Yeah, Captain Denny. So. Uh, and have you had experiences um, with patients? And I know some people, the other way around, have you ever had where a patient maybe that you've been treating regularly tells you that they have a premonition about their own death as far as or that they feel like they they're going to be passing away soon and you might be going huh you know when that happens you get the willies because yes. it, it it does happen i i know uh it hasn't happened to me that much i can't think of one specific example but i know there's a doctor um that is a surgeon and uh, he was operating on a person with a lung mass. He was, he was a chest surgeon and, and had to take out a, a lung tumor. And it was a pretty simple procedure, you know, overall. Um, and uh, the person that was getting the procedure said to him, I'm going to die today. Uh, I want to say goodbye to my family. I'm going to say goodbye to everyone. And he said, well, no, you know, that's, that's crazy. You know, we're going to just, it's a simple procedure. It will take about an hour. We'll get the tumor out. You'll be cured. It'll be fine. And she said, well, thank you very much. Thank you for trying to help me. But I know this is, this is the end.
And he didn't think much of that, no, nor did anyone else. And sure enough, they put her to sleep. He started the surgery. She arrested, and they couldn't get her going, and she died. Right. And so after that, he said to me, I, I'm never going to offer anyone that says that starts that, telling me that. that tells me that they think they're going to die because uh, that does happen. Well, it's, it's kind you of know swoop. what? I, I had um, my grandfather, and I was around 12 or 13 years old when you're, when you're that age. But I remember my mom telling me mm -hmm. that it was because around here we have mangoes. And usually yes. they'll flower up in the spring and you'll get mangoes around July. My grandfather was already in his 80s, but he had no physical ailments. He didn't have anything seriously wrong with him. He was just old, but okay, yeah. nothing. And my mom told me that they were talking about fruits or eating fruits. And she says, well you know what, in a few months we'll, we'll eat some mangoes or something like that. You know, pretty soon they'll be flowering up. And he told my mom, he goes, nope, I'm not going to be around for that. And this was like three or four months before. And she was like, that's a weird thing for him to say. Yeah, yeah. And uh, sure enough, he unexpectedly, he went into the hospital for a checkup, something going on with his lungs. I think he had smoked quite a lot when he was younger yeah. and even though he had stopped. And mm -hmm. he was 84. But at the time that he said it, he was not ill. He was, nothing was going on. Yeah. And my mom told me that story. She goes, I don't know. He just said it very matter-of-factly. Mm -hmm. He goes, no, I'm not yeah. going to be around for that. I'm not going to be here in the springtime. Mm -hmm. And she was like, okay. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. people know. Yeah, there are, there are circumstances like that where people know, and they know that they're going to die. And I'm, I'm not sure. I've, I've, I've seen that. Um, I can think of one person that, that actually, uh, now that I think about it, that uh, told me that he was going to die that this particular day. He's got get everything ready, and sure enough, he had uh, some metastatic cancer, so he wasn't well. Okay. But uh, we didn't expect him to die that soon, and he said, today mm -hmm. I'm going to go. And he got everything ready, had breakfast, and uh, laid down in the afternoon, and, and he died. And so you can't, you can't well, explain those things. And, and it's almost the same, along the same stories of what you said about the other doctor that was presumed to be dying because he was you know, his brain was not working. And, right, and right. I imagine you've come across stories of people that beat the odds that get a diagnosis of something that's like, okay, you're going to be dying soon or something. Sure. And then they, yeah. they get beyond it. Yeah. I had a lady that uh, had metastatic breast cancer and she'd mm -hmm. failed every radiation, chemotherapy, radi uh, hormonal therapy, whatever. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had her in the hospital. I had the oncology group see her, <coughs> excuse me. And they said, uh, you know, she's got cancer around her heart and the sac around her heart, the pericardium, cancer in the liver, she has cancer in the lungs, she has cancer everywhere. We just, you know, she's failed everything. And let's just let, send her home and, and, and let her, you know, let her be with her family as, as many days as she can. We didn't expect her to live more than, you know, a week or two. And uh, so I decided that, you know, I'd, I'd want to see her about a week after she went home. And so I, I did, and, and she was still cooking along. and. I thought, well, she's got a little reprieve here, and then uh -huh. a couple of weeks later, and and she looked, you know, pretty pretty good, and and I I'm thinking, well, she's, you know, for some reason she's got a little, a little, little more time to spend with her family. That's nice. I saw her a month later, and and she looked pretty pretty good, and <laughs> she actually she was gaining weight. You know, you don't, you don't do that when you have metastatic cancer generally. Uh huh. So a month later, and she had gained more weight, and I said, well, you know, maybe. We better, Marlene. We better let's let's take a just a CAT scan and see where this cancer is now and see what the prognosis is, and it was gone. There was no cancer anywhere. There was no cancer in her lung and her heart and her liver, and she lived I think nine more years. She ultimately died <laughs> of cancer. Incredible. 
It's incredible. So all, yeah, yeah. What the body and, is uh, capable of. Yeah, yeah. And so there's some theories about what happens there with the immune system and so forth. But, you know, mm-hmm. either it's miraculous or there's something in the body that triggers some immune response and it, 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 it makes the cancer go away. So that's what happened to her. So I'll never forget that. Right. That makes you think besides, you know, obviously medication and treatment, how much of our mind or our desire to live or yeah. our mental state has to do with the people that survive, or in this case, that the cancer yeah. disappears versus other ones, people that get resigned to the fact that they're going to die and that's yeah. it. They just stop fighting yeah. on there's all lot, levels. Yeah, there's a lot to be said for fighting and for having positive attitude. And and, uh, and then the, the, there's the, the element that we just can't explain. I and have you run across any stories? I've spoken to, again, people usually nursing, the people in the nursing mm-hmm. staff that they said that once – spoken to a couple of them that usually work that overnight shift you know yes. when things are quieter and, mm-hmm. and they say that every once in a while they've had experiences of seeing certain things mm-hmm. that almost that they know or either something going into a certain room that later on it turns out that person died or just really unusual stuff and they said and normally it's the people that work that you know nighttime middle of the early morning hour two three in the morning yeah that witness yeah, yeah. The, things there are this. Some, there are some some interesting things that happen like that um one of the stories that comes to mind is uh, jack heitzler who is a gynecologist that i know who actually delivered two of our kids who are still walking and talking and speaking <laughs> interestingly, uh, and uh, doing very well and jack's wife was delivering their uh, fifth child okay uh, and um, uh, joan is her, is her name and she um was uh, doing really well with the delivery. Um, Joan, Joan's grandmother, interestingly, was a midwife, and uh, Joan, uh, uh, Grandma Hanlon was her name, and Grandma Hanlon uh, was kind of the, the leader in the family. She was a spiritual leader. She would do all kinds of uh, things for free. She would deliver babies for free uh, at the time, and, and as a midwife, and, and if people couldn't afford to pay her, uh, she just wouldn't take take any money, and she'd stay with the family for a couple weeks afterwards, and so ultimately, Grandma Helen had to retire uh, from because she got older, and she lived with Joan uh, when Joan was a little girl and her mother. And Joan would always say, if I could make it to Grandma Hanlon's lap, they became very, very close and very loving. If mm-hmm. I could make it to Grandma Hanlon's lap, I knew I'd be safe, you know, for my mother when I got in trouble. <laughs> <It's> like, yeah. <laughs> so uh, Joan was, had delivered the baby, uh, her fifth child, and everything went well. Then she had uh, a lot of pain associated with some retained placenta, so they had to do a little procedure to get rid of that retained placenta. And so she asked for some anesthetic, and in those days, trialene was the drug of choice. And you put the trialene mask over a woman's face, they go into a deep sleep, unconscious, basically, and, and then they can do the procedure, and then they wake them up afterwards. So Joan was about ready to take the, the trialene mask and, 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 and become unconscious, and, and well, they could do the rest of the procedure. When Grandma Hanlon steps into the room, a little, little short little Grandma Hanlon, uh, pretty, uh, almost as wide as she was uh, tall, and she was dressed in her little polka dot dress that she usually wore with a sweater vest and her hair white on the bottom, little old lady shoes. And, and she stood at the foot of the bed and she said, you know, no, Joan, don't, don't take the trilene. And Joan didn't know why, so she pushed the trilene away. Well, no one realized that Joan had eaten a large meal right before labor. And it was 30 seconds after she pushed the anesthetic away that would have put her into a deep sleep, she vomited the whole meal. Had she been asleep, she would have aspirated and could have died from that. Oh, my God. 
And Joan said that she made it to Grandma Hanlon's lap one last time, having transcended time and eternity because Grandma Hanlon had died 22 years before that. What? <laughs> oh my God, I'm getting goosebumps. I'm getting goosebumps with that story. Grandma Hanlon had saved her life uh, and come from the other side to, to do that. That, so. wow. So there are some somebody running interference from you. I remember back in the 1980s, this is when I was busy having babies, and I remember, you know, where I used to work at, um, there was a couple of other girls that we all went to the same uh, obstetrician. You know how girls, everybody's like, he's great. Yeah. yeah. And I remember there was a coworker of mine, she was a friend of mine, and we, we had the same obstetrician. And she told me the story that he told her that um, he had been leaving the hospital like at 2 or 3 in the morning. And I know which hospital it was. It's right mm -hmm. on a super busy highway here in Miami. But it yeah. says it was 2 or 3 in the morning. It says usually at that time, that highway is empty. Sure. And he was coming out of the hospital, and he was going to turn on that busy highway, which was empty, yeah. supposedly. Yeah. But he says that the light, you know, the, 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 the arrow turned for him to turn, you know, the green arrow for him to get on the highway. And he says mm -hmm. something told him don't go mm -hmm. he says sure enough as soon as he just as usually you think he says this guy coming he said he must have been doing about close to 100 miles an hour just blew right down the roadway of course took the red light sure and if he would have you know if he would have turned this guy would have t-boned him and it would have been a horrific accident oh, and sure. he says he couldn't yeah. understand why something just told him don't go yeah. even if you have the green light and um, I remember my friend Maggie, she was the one, she goes, oh, you know what? That happened because he brings life into the world. He's so close mm -hmm. to life mm -hmm. that this is, they, they were trying to keep him safe. Yeah. And I never forgot that story back from the 1980s yeah. when she told me because, she, you know, we had the same doctor. So it was like, sure. wow. And those I kinds mean, of things happen regularly, I think. And if people pay attention to those little feelings, uh, that will keep them out of trouble in many cases. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and I mean, I understand perfectly that that's like, a, it's a, it's a street that normally it's very busy during the daytime, but at that time of morning, there's hardly anybody. And you would think even then that you could, and yeah, yeah sometimes it's some people like, again, the ones that don't heed the warning, how would you ever know that they didn't? Because sometimes, unfortunately, bad things happen to them yeah. or yeah. they, yeah. But I think, yeah, that they're, I want to say a lot of times that we've been more directed into, again, into the scientific mode and every, anything that doesn't fit or can be quantified or proven or analyzed or right. reproduced, it's like, mm -hmm. oh, and, um, but at the same time, I think that once you have that experience firsthand, like what happened with you, even though mm -hmm. you heard stories from yeah. persons that you trusted with what they were telling you there's right. something that happens your paradigm shifts totally mm -hmm. that yeah. of course you can't ever prove it no but there's something that changes as to how you see the world that there's de definitely much more than what we can see feel touch you know with our regular senses for sure for sure and i think that that's that's one of the reasons i wanted to write the book because these are scientists that have gone through these experiences that they love to explain scientifically, <clears throat> but simply can't. 
and and some of these some of these doctors have had these amazing experiences and and again they've been afraid to, to talk with about them for for a long time uh, but they they have have come through and uh, were able to to tell me uh, one of those was uh, uh, Dave Mokel, who is one of my uh, orthopedic surgical friends and he was um, operating on one of my patients and it's interesting when I um, when I when I first saw him and he told me about the story, I, I, we were walking together on the floor, and he grabbed me and said, "Scott, I've got to tell you this incredible story." And I said, "Okay, tell it to me." And Dave said, "Well, I can't tell it to you here. Someone might hear me." Yeah. <laughs> so we went into a private room <laughs> and the hospital. Like I will deny all knowledge if anybody ever asks me. That. <laughs> and he said, uh, "You know, Mary uh, was, is your patient. We we're going to operate on her foot, and we put her to sleep and and administered the antibiotic." And she arrested, and she she flatlined, no respirations, no pulse, no blood pressure. She was she was dead, and we started CPR. And uh, the the when they call a code in the operating room, everyone kind of comes in from the other rooms and they try to help out. And there was one of the techs that came in with uh, pretty bright red hair underneath his operating room cap, and he started to do CPR. Now Mary was a big person. And he wasn't doing CPR adequately enough because Dr. Molkla couldn't feel the pulse, so he, he asked him to step aside. Well, so he could do the CPR, and he didn't step aside. And he asked him a couple times, and you know, codes aren't really uh, a polite affair. They're a life and death situation, mm -hmm. and when you're not doing an adequate job, that person can die because you're not adequately doing enough compression. So Dave went up to him and pushed him aside, <laughs> and he took over <laughs> doing CPR. The guy stumbled off, but here, then Dave started to do CPR. Well, after he started to do the CPR, they administered some epinephrine and a few other things. She came around again, but not to consciousness. She, her pulse came back, her heart was beating, and she was breathing on her own, and then she went off to the ICU. They, they stopped the surgery, obviously, and the cardiologist took over, and they found that it was the, the antibiotic wow. that caused her arrest. She had an anaphylactic reaction. Okay. Well, it's interesting, you know, they took care of her, everything seemed to be fine. After about three days, she was ready to go home. Uh, they had not done the operation, obviously. They had postponed that for some other day. And Dr. Mokel went in to see her to give her the final instructions about what to do with her foot and so forth since they didn't operate on it. And, and she said to Dave, uh, uh, to Dr. Mokel, uh, Dr. Mokel, thank you for, for saving my life. And he's kind of a humble guy. And, and he said, well, it was just kind of a team effort. Everyone kind of pitched in. And she said, no, no. I saw you push that guy with the red hair aside. Oh, and I saw you start doing the CPR. And that's what saved me. You saved my life, literally. And Dr. Mokel all of a sudden got weak knees. I had to sit down to listen to the story. And she went on to tell him all the minutiae of what happened in the operating room, uh -huh. about what the person was wearing and who did uh, CPR next and, and, you know, all those kinds of th details that really, really she couldn't have learned unless she was right there. And then Dr. Mokel said, well, how did you know all this? And, he, and she said, well, when I, when I arrested, I rose to the top of the room and I was able to see everything that was happening. And while I was there, interestingly, my grandmother came to me, who had been dead for a number of years. Wow. Uh, and she told me that it wasn't my time to go, that I'd have to go back. But if I was a kind and nice person, that I would have a special place reserved for me in heaven uh, that uh, was, was just for me. Uh, and so it's interesting. Mary, before this, was not a nice person. Really? <laughs> person you didn't want to see in the office because she'd always complain you're late, you didn't prescribe the right medicine, okay. I'm still sick, you know, I mean, it's, it was just... She was unhappy. Know, very unhappy and never nice to any of us. After this arrest and after <laughs> she came back, 
She was the most kind and wonderful. <laughs> she'd bake us cookies. She'd thank us for taking care of her. And she was a totally changed person. She helped her widowed father for a number of years. She ultimately died about seven or eight years later because she had multiple medical problems, diabetes and heart disease mm -hmm. and so forth. But in the meantime, she was the kindest person in the world. And so I called the story Mary's Christmas Carol because it reminded me of Scrooge. Well, you know what? And it makes you think she had... It, how could, in other words, she wasn't lying about this because how could she have done this whole attitude change? Yeah, yeah. If, yeah, exactly. And it makes you wonder, did she, did she have a breakthrough or was she like, I don't want to go to the hot place, so <laughs> I, <laughs> I better know. be good. I better be yeah. nice. That's really curious. Dave, Dr. Mokul, still can't explain how she knew all the stuff that had happened to her yes. in great detail. And he would, he'd ask her a few things and she'd come up with the answer. And uh, so, I mean, that couldn't be uh, someone telling her what happened exactly that, with those minute details. So, yeah, I've, that's, I've, uh, I've heard of people even uh, besides, what, you know, the ones that have come back from near-death experiences that they can even uh, have said, have overheard or seen family members in another room yeah. And been able to yeah. tell them what they were saying or what was going on. Yeah. There's some interesting things that happen that we just can't explain. I think so. that is so interesting. And to me, yeah. I, I think that, you know, as much as we want to, like, put everything into little boxes, you know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they're human beings. Um, well, I think also the laws of physics prove it now that so much of what we think is definite or solid really yeah. isn't as far as energy is concerned and yeah. you know what our eyes see is not really what it is as far as uh the way energy works i think it yeah. has a lot to do it and i think also uh, sometimes I, and some I, I guess it depends on the person maybe why some doctors because they're like it's not even having to do with religion versus spirituality like that part of the human being mm -hmm. that what happens to us after our physical body dies sure you know Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, you know, some people want to say, oh, it's a fairy tale. You know, when you're dead, you're dead. Your body dies. That's the end of you. Bye. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think that I'm not going to say all the time, but I think a lot of sometimes that scientific field has always kind of looked down like, yeah, those people, you know, the ones that believe in like that there's a spirit and a soul, you know. Mm. Yeah. And then, you know, when you go to training, I'm sure you know, when you were going through medical school and everything, everything has got to be science, hard facts. Right. right. And that's why I thought this was so interesting that these doc all these doctors would have these very unusual stories because these are trained scientists. They don't yes. want to believe this stuff. But it happens, and they can't, they can't explain it. Dr. Mokul was just totally, totally blown away. I mean, he, he couldn't explain what, what, was, what happened there except to say that she had a, a near-death experience and that there's something else out there that's, sure. that we can't explain. And I, I think that's what the bottom line is for the doctors, that there's something else out there. Uh, some of them called it God, some of them called it a spirit, some of them called it a force. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't care what you call it, I think, as long as, as uh, people realize that there is something else, that what we have here on this earth is not uh, everything. There's something, there's something else. That. And and these these stories and these experiences help prove that that there is there's more to life than just what we can see. And you think of all the ones that came and shared experiences with you, how many more didn't? Well, that's true because many of them, uh, again, you know, here I'm going to publish their story for the world, and, and there uh -huh. there has to tell it to, to one person. So yes. 
so uh, yeah, I, I suspect there are lots of uh, lots of doctors that didn't share their stories because they're just too too uh, private, and and yes. they were afraid of, of retribution by the by their patients. Here's a doc that has uh, seen ghosts, and and uh, yes. not going to go to go to a doctor that's seen. And these are right. for ordinary doctors like me. Mm -hmm. uh, that just our workaday docs that are in private practice in most cases that have no reason to tell a tall tale. They have not. They're not going to gain anything by doing this. Right. Uh, and they have potentially much to lose. So. Yeah, and I think also now with modern medicine, you know, where so much of it is like machinery driven, as far as like what you said that yeah. when that person was determined to be brain dead, I'm sure that was because machines were saying there's no type of anything going on in the brain, right, whereas, right. you know, once upon a time, you know, it was the opposite, people got buried alive, but still, and it's like, okay, you can rely on the machinery only up to a certain point, but then the sure. equation can change, the X factor is the person's spirit, a lot right. of, so There's many things, so mm -hmm. many things that could make the, uh, the difference as far as, as the outcome um, right. nowadays. I think that is, God, those stories are fascinating. I want they to thank you. I'm sorry, what? They were to me also. I oh, was they, no, I was, and I'm, haven't you ever, I, <laughs> don't you have any of them coming up to you so you can do volume two on these? Well, I'm working on volume two. Oh, okay. So I've got some new stories. The one you heard about, the airline pilot, will be in the second book. Okay. And uh, we're also working on a potential TV series. We're talking to some networks. Okay. Actually, have a TV series on this too. So I think uh, that so many people would be glued to it because I'm telling you, for all our technology and the phones, and I think the human spirit yearns for that. I think it as does. As knowing that that is, no matter what the technology and you know how nowadays we're getting the scare of AI, you know, artificial intelligence <laughs> and technology, yep. and everywhere you go, they can find you. <laughs> <laughs> True. That people True. realize, I think, something inside of us knows that there's something that is beyond that. And these stories are something that, that inside you go, I knew it. <laughs> I exactly. That. And it, it also helps people uh, recognize the stories that they've had. Yes. Many of my patients, when I tell these stories, will say, oh, yeah, I, I didn't realize. I thought that was a coincidence that I had, but maybe it really wasn't where I happened to just turn on that lane and, and I avoided the car accident or whatever. Mm -hmm. there, there are a number of things like that that have happened to people that they didn't recognize as more than just a coincidence. Yes, yes. And I'm going to tell you a real quick story. I remember when I was a teenager, my first car was a Camaro. Mm -hmm. I was a pretty good driver. It wasn't a crazy driver. But my grandfather, the one that I told you that, he had already passed away. And I mean, how do you thought of him? I was like 18 or 19. You know? yeah. And I remember I had this dream where you know those you know those 70s Camaros they had that bucket seat that real tall bucket seat sure and sure. my dream I'm coming out of my other grandparents house and my car was parked there and I'm like looking through the back and I'm seeing which I don't know how I knew it because he had he was had all white hair but he had a full head of hair that I knew he was sitting in the passenger seat of my car in my dream I'm thinking what is he doing sitting in my passenger seat of my car it was one of those really weird kind of dreams sure. that you have yeah yeah. Next day, I'm driving down the street again, two lane, and res you know, kind of a residential area. And all of a sudden, I'm looking and I'm seeing and I'm thinking, wow, that car is coming up the lane towards me because it was a two lane. I was like, you know, when you do like when you're far off and you're like thinking, is that the back of a car? But no, that's the front of a car 
uh-huh. coming towards me. Uh-oh. You know, you do one of those and, well, basically I had to like do like a s- real sharp swerve off. Thank God there was no cars parked off on uh-huh. the swale area. Yeah. But I, it would have been, he was passing up. I don't know what he was doing, to be honest with you. I, It would have been a front-end collision, like horrible, horrible, horrible. Yeah. And considering yeah. that normally when you're 19, you're like what I was doing, listening to music. And, uh, yeah. and yeah. afterwards, and especially as I, I realized, I think that was my grandfather trying to give me a, which had by the way, I had never thought or dreamt of my grandfather at all this time. Sure, sure. He was like almost trying to give me like what you said, like a little heads up, like be careful or I'm going to be with you. Yeah. Like I said, it would, if I would not, if I would have, it would have been a horrible accident. It would have been a head-on collision. Mm-hmm. And at the last minute, I just swerved off because, and um, I think things like that, you know, a lot of people could say, well, and I said, but the timing on it was like, I never dreamt of my grandfather. I wasn't thinking of my grandfather. Yeah. Um, nothing along. The, I just remember waking up the next morning. That's a weird dream. So I understand perfectly what you mean that sometimes there's something that you understand when you have that experience that you know inside of you that this was not a coincidence. Right. Right. I think that happens to almost all of us. Yes. At yes, some point. It does. Yes, it does. Well, Dr. Kobaba, thank you so very, very much for sharing this time with me. Um, I'm going to put a link to your website on the credits of the show. It has been wonderful for me personally. It's fascinating. And I do hope that they do that series because it would be wonderful. And also when you put out your book, because again, I'm sure like what you said, that there's a lot of people out there that have had their own experiences. Some of them have talked about it and others just... Again, they don't want to ruin their careers or right. they're afraid, afraid their family's going to look at them and go, huh? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. For sure. For sure. You know, we're like, um, you know, that uh, and, and nowadays, you know, unfortunately, publicity is a double-edged sword in some cases. You know, it could be it great for you or it could like really hurt you if it's taken out yeah. of context. So I understand yeah. definitely those doctors that shared their stories with you. Man, hats off to them. Yeah. So far, no one has been criticized. Everyone has right. been treated like a hero. That You they, know why? Because I think everybody has had some type of experience or knows somebody that has had that experience that they believe them. Exactly. In other words, the source. Exactly. Yeah. But coming from them, just, from doctors, and I hate to say, but, you know, usually doctors have this, you know, that they're like, they're, they don't believe in stuff like that. It's like the medicine and... Right. That's why I wanted to include doctors, because they're not the type that would have these kinds of stories generally attributed to them. And that, you know, I think it's more powerful when a person of science comes out with a non-scientific uh, story and an experience that they just simply can't explain scientifically. So exactly. it's been fun to include the, the, these stories. I think, let me tell you, it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Dr. Kobaba, again, thank you so much. You have been wonderful. And again, I absolutely look forward to seeing your second book and seeing the show that you're going to, hopefully that we're going to see, because I'm telling you, it's going to do really, really well. I know. I know. Thanks, Brian. It's great talking with you. You've been great. Likewise. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Oh, my God. That is such, those stories. I would love for them to put that show together. Yeah, think about it. Think about it. You know, um, I'm not kidding. 
I think yes, yes, people, okay, let's put it this way. God knows there's a lot of paranormal reality shows with ghostbusters and psychics and everything, but always you have people will say, well, you know what, that they're, it's a ghost hunter's reality or psychics is, you know, but I think that when, like, like when Dr. Moody wrote all, you know, originally some of these, the, the, the books on the near-death experiences, a lot of people paid attention because this was coming from a doctor, somebody that's trained in medicine, scientific, and again, when you come to that point where you've gone through the checklist of plausible, probable, rational explanations for something you experienced or witnessed, then you're left with that. And I think that if they put that show together where the sources are people like that, that are doctors, that, you know, depending on the type of practice they have, uh, they come into contact with people that are sometimes life or death or like what happened with that doctor where he found this person that was injured of all things with a broken leg and he's an orthopedic surgeon under a tree that if it wouldn't have been for that, that that's it. They would have found this guy like a popsicle, you know, either the next day or two days or like he said in spring, who knows, because who would have known to look there. Um, doesn't necessarily have to be in, you know, in a hospital setting or in a doctor's office. And... Um, God, that show would be great because, again, I think there's a lot of people out there that even if they're not doctors, they've had similar experiences where they know they, there's no way I could have known that or there's, um, in other words, the odds are astronomical. Like that, oh, that story about this man who's like the the one person that's going to be able to bring down a plane not only that th have three hydraulic systems which all went at the same time that let me tell you something i'm thinking about that and that's like that's hair raising talk about the perfect person like he said and he that wasn't the original choice he had as a plane why he went on there who knows <clears throat> and what we were talking about which is um sometimes you know a lot of people will think well people die sometimes and there's nobody there to save them or to rescue them and then you think well maybe it is this person's time you know it is this person's time and it just wasn't their their destiny and then there's other people that do get some type of warning or premonition whether it's a feeling or a dream or another person telling them don't do this don't go there whatever and they dismiss it and they go but then let's say it didn't come from another person how would there's no way for anybody to ever know that this person had a feeling of not to do or go somewhere and they dismissed it because obviously maybe something happened to them. They got died or got killed and there's no way for them to say, yeah, by the way, you know what, before I went on this trip or before I went to this place or before X, Y, and Z, I had a feeling I shouldn't do that, but I did it anyway. Again, we come back to... Um, I think there's, we have, I don't want to say psychic because a lot of people say, think of psychic as in psychic mediums and 
communicating. I think that we all have this innate sense about us that sometimes dwells in our subconscious mind. As you know, I'm a, I'm a hypnotherapist and I understand very well the way the subconscious works. And a subconscious basically is always picking up everything. Okay? And, you know, I know there's some instances where basically you're coming up with things that there's no way you could know even subconsciously because you've never been exposed to the information. But if you think about it, again, whether I think it's between our subconscious mind picking up cues and observing certain things or a, a sense that we have that you can't say, well, it's this one thing that allows us to, how can I say, if you, if you stop thinking of time as being linear, that it is able to observe and see things that will happen and give that information back to you even though let's say this okay will not happen in the future or again let's go to that example of that doctor that found this person injured number one how did he find this person the way he did number two it makes you wonder did his dead father intercede somehow to lift this burden off his son's heart in the sense of that he felt guilty because he hadn't been able to save his dad a couple of years before think about it as a parent I know that if I passed and it was within my power to help one of my children I absolutely would do it especially something like this that was probably maybe even impeding him from being you know enjoying his being a doctor or what was it that he had a chance to I don't want to use the word to redeem himself because in truth he really didn't do anything wrong. But in his mind, his perception of his reality was that he felt culpable that he hadn't been able to save his dad. That, In other words, he still owed a life. And there's no way that could have been manufactured ahead of time. You know, he wasn't around going around, okay, let me see if I can find somebody to save. Uh, no, he's, he's skiing. He's having a good time. I, th I just think that those those stories and what he was describing, I'm telling you, for despite all that we are able to quantify, to explain, to diagram, to analyze, to x-ray, to uh, find, even with the laws of physics, you know, that, you know, here we are, we're going off to Mars, uh, we're going, doing all these breakthrough um, theories and physics, even though there's a lot, there's so much that we don't know. I guess is my point. There is so much that we do not know. Okay. That, again, I'm going to come back to Marlene's theory. I'm a humanist. I believe in human beings. I believe that we're going to triumph. And a lot of people will say, well, there's so many horrible things going on sometimes. Sometimes I don't get it caught up on the how because sometimes I think that's unimportant because there's certain things that you can't figure out or imagine or know, but that we have potential outside of this physical body, absolutely, even when we're alive, even when we're here, okay? And absolutely, you know, when we, we're not within our physical body, okay? 
like I said before, hopefully we're not tied down to this earth plane because it's not the place for us, you know. But that if we have, let's say, a loved one, that we could do something to tap him on the shoulder spiritually wise and say, look under that tree, look under the tree. Because you know this is what your child needs, even though he's a grown man, to, to soothe his heart. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So again, guys, believe me, as human beings, we're so interesting. This world is so interesting, despite the fact that everything, you know, like I said, now with technology and uh, everything feels like it's being analyzed and observed. And uh, there's, I'm telling you, there's so many mysteries out there, including this one, what happens to us after we pass away. I don't know, guys. I love this interview with Dr. Kobama. So, I'll, again, I'm going to put a link to his website on the credits of the show. All right. And um, I'm sure that from there you can link over to purchase his book. And like I said, I hope to see a second book. I hope the series. And so, guys, don't forget uh, subscribe to the channel, whether it's on YouTube or any of the podcast platforms. So you get notified of when I release new shows. Catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. My true believers, don't forget to send me your stories. Especially if you've got stories like this. I would love to hear stories like this. You know, it doesn't have to be about ghosts or anything like this. If you have, and I've said it before, if you have some unusual experience, by what I mean unusual, it could be things like what I said, premonitions, things that happen that afterwards, you're like, huh? Like, you have this feeling, I know that, something either divine or spiritual or whatever intervened or something happened i'd love to hear about those don't forget me send them to morningmiamighostchronicles.com or just go to miamighostchronicles.com i have a tab there and again you have links to all the uh, podcast platforms from my website also links to the youtube videos if you want to see them there or if you even want to download the mp3 files of the shows the podcast versions you can do it from my website and um, I have a f- phenomenal guest coming on the show, guys. You're going to love him. Believe me. There's a lot of interesting people out there. <laughs> and uh, I was hoping to go on an investigation. I got I got an invite and uh, from a group that I interviewed about a year ago and you even saw me in an investigation their blood boom paranormal they work out of central florida and um i got an invite from connie from the lead investigator from them had somebody that might have been experiencing something with an egyptian curse but i can't go because i'm incubating and hatching chickens (laughs) chick eggs yes i am and uh, when you're in the middle of that, you can't be gone. I, I would have to do a little bit of travel, like a few hours maybe. I'd be gone for the day, and I, I can't afford to do that. But my point being that I'm hoping that I'm going to be able to uh, go on some other investigations in the field and bring you guys along so that uh, you can see the real, real work of true paranormal investigators. Again, guys, thank you so much. You are all wonderful. Take care. <laughs>